We decided to do the only interview with Robert F. Kennedy Jr. conducted in the last 15 years that doesn't mention vaccines. But if you're interested in why we have found ourselves at war with Russia, or who killed his uncle, President Kennedy, and why, it's worth watching. Bobby Kennedy Jr., thank you for joining us. Uh, so I noticed when you showed up, you've been on the road for weeks, you had no Secret Service with you, which is a little weird given your, well, that your father was murdered while running for president, as you now are. Why wouldn't you have Secret Service protection? Well, uh, you know, I did do a tweet on that that got uh, 30 million views when, when we got rejected. I, we applied in May for Secret Service protection. There actually, Secret Service protection was only allocated to the nominees of the parties prior to 1968. But when my father was killed, they changed the law immediately. And all of the people who were running against him, including, um, uh, including George Wallace, immediately got Secret Service protection. So the law says that you're entitled to Secret Service protection automatically 100 days out. Um, but the president also has discretion to give Secret Service protection to any candidate, any candidate for any reason. And there are criteria, which is that you have to have 15% of uh, polling results for a limited period of time. But he even can overrule that. For example, President Obama was given Secret Service protection 441 days out, or five, no, 551 days out, even though he had uh, only, I think, 5% uh, support at that time. Um, my uncle Teddy was given Secret Service protection 450 days out, um, even though he had not even declared for his presidency. And so Carter, it, he and Carter hated each other. Carter. Uh, was President Carter was, you know, the president of his own party, and Teddy had been enormously critical of him. And personally, they had they had a very personal antipathy for one another. And Teddy ended up running against them. But when he was moving into that decision to run, Carter, in a very classy move, gave him Secret Service protection. Oh, we applied for it. I get a lot of threats, a lot of death threats, and I get you know a lot of uh, people who are, for example, about two weeks ago, a mentally ill person made it to the second story of my house, and that is a very, very common occurrence. In, inside your house? Yeah, inside my house. Before you know, somebody who was working there uh, stopped them and then called the police, and we have a. We gave the Secret Service a 67, in fact, Gavin DeBecker, who you've had on this show, yes. who's the premier, runs the premier security service in the world, um, put together a 67-page report, which included 28 pages of, you know, of all the threats, of, you know, typical threats against me and, um, and other indicia that I should have Secret Service protection. And we, I assume the president would give it to me because, um, you know, it just seems like bad judgment not to give it to me. You know, if you go even on my Twitter feed, probably one out of, I don't know, every 30 or 40 comments says, oh, you're going to get killed or something like that. You know, it, just, it takes notice of the peculiar threats to my family, who, family members who are in this business. 
Oh, it's something that, you know, the, the average American is aware of. Yeah, your and, name is Robert F. Kennedy. Yeah, yeah. And, the, um, and so it was an odd decision. I got a letter, uh, Gavin actually got the letter because he had been doing, and by the way, I wanna say this, the Secret Service themselves were wonderful. They were very, very encouraging, and they were very helpful at, at every step along the way. And I, I believe, and I can't speak for them, but I believe that their assumption was that, they, that we were going to get Secret Service protection. In fact, they told Gavin, we're going to send somebody out there within 10 days to interview Cheryl and Bobby and um, to, you know, to tell them uh, what it's going to look like. Because there's a lot of questions about, you know, do I go to the gym? Do I have them? You know, all of these questions that I don't know the answers to. And they, they come and they have, a, they have a standard process for informing you. But then they went dark. And they said, uh, a decision is made very quickly within 14 days, is what they told us. And they said, we have eight details standing by ready to go. So we can do this very quickly. And then they went dark. And for 88 days, uh, we didn't hear from them. And then I got the letter from Mayorkas, Alexander Mayorkas, who's the director of DHS, um, saying that we've determined that you don't need Secret Service protection. But it's very obvious, and you've confirmed it, that there are threats against your life, against your family. That's known. And so if they deny you protection, and they know that, what message are they sending? I don't really know what they're they're doing. And by the way, you know, we've looked, and um, there's a guy called Jeremy Hammond, who's done a really good article, a really thorough article about the past. And he was not able, and we were not able to find a single presidential candidate who had requested uh, protection from the president and was not given protection. You know, Herman Cain got it, I think, 500 days out. Uh, Jesse Jackson, Shirley Chisholm, George Bush, and Ronald Reagan got it something five or six hundred days out when they first ran. So it's just standard operating procedure, and particularly people who are polling around the anywhere over fifteen percent, which I have been for four or five months now, um, are you know regarded as uh, it, it's been treated as pro forma. And I am the outlier. I'm the single outliner that we could find that was denied Secret Service. Why do you think that is? I think um, that, you know, I think the DNC is playing hardball. And let's say this, I think the least malevolent uh, interpretation that you can put on it is that uh, they know that I'm going to have to have some kind of security service. And that typically would cost me, uh, you know, to do to do real security service between one hundred and two hundred thousand dollars a month, because you have to pay the protectors, you have to pay for their transportation, of course, you have hotels, to pay for the, the, the cars and uh, the hotels, the foods, and all of this, and it's very expensive because I'm traveling every day. So I think they, you know, they probably feel like they can bleed me white by, you know, and making making sure that I'm not. Uh, and I'm not spending that money on advertising or organization, but that I have to raise a lot of money for my own protection. But I, I don't know. I mean, I'm just speculating about that. Does it strike you that the Biden administration pays for personal security for Zelensky, but not for you? No, well, they, you know, listen, John Bolton has still has a Secret Service detail. Um, still? Yeah, still. He hasn't been in government in years.
And um, you didn't do a good all, job in you know, all, all the president's family um, have Secret Service details. You know, Hunter has a Secret Service detail. When he goes to court every day, he has four or five cars that are coming with him in a very, very big detail. Oh, and, you know, many government officials who are ex-government officials, what the Secret Service told us, and what, and you can go to look at Jerry Hammond's, uh, Jeremy Hammond's report, uh, which you can find on, uh, I think you just go on the internet, put Jeremy Hammond and, you know, RFK, Secret Service. Um, but uh, he, you know, he shows that, that literally nobody, no presidential candidate, many, many other people are receiving it. And, I, and I'm really like an outlier. So, I mean, that raises the larger, I mean, you're running against Biden, right? So obviously yeah. you're not on his Christmas card list anymore. But <laughs> it does raise the bigger question, why do people in Washington have this, and not just in government, but also in media, have this kind of special loathing for you, this hatred? I don't know that. I cannot answer that question. I I am um, I'm kind of I'm shocked. Even though you know I've been uh, I'd say maligned for many years because of the stuff that I was doing with vaccines, the kind of the uniformity of the, the vitriol against me and the mainstream media and the dishonesty of it that you know virtually every article contains uh, not just outright, not just mischaracterizations, but also just outright lies, things that any fact checker could look up and determine were not true. Um, and they all are doing it, whether it's Vanity Fair or whether it's the Atlantic Monthly or Washington Post, Boston Globe. Um, uh, there's just, there's virtually no exception. Uh, what do you think your, your crime is? I think part of it is that there's been, and again, I don't know, I can't explain it. Somebody else, I know somebody will explain it in a way at one point where I'll go, ah, that makes sense. But right now, what it seems to me is that there's been this alignment, this political alignment that I think really started with Fox News back, you know, when Roger was running things there, where he, he overtly made it a political network. He yes. aligned it with the Republican Party, and he said, we're going to push their agenda. And up until then, that has considered, been considered a journalistic ethical breach. You know, the, the, the networks were, were supposed to at least pretend neutrality and, uh, and the newspapers as well. But um, now I think that business model works so well for Fox. And, and again, that I think MSNBC and CNN adopted the same uh, business model. And then there's been this big consolidation in the media where there really is no independent media. You have every newspaper in this country, every radio station, every TV station, um, almost all the billboards and most of the large internet content providers that are now owned by five companies. You know, that was illegal under the 1928 Communication the Radio Act. But um, today, it's been, uh, that has been what's happened. We've had this big consolidation, and I think the profit models for Wall Street, which now, you know, it's BlackRock and Vanguard and State Street, which own them all, and they have to, oh, the news divisions have become business models, business um, profit centers. And they've aligned themselves, they've figured out that their strategy is to align themselves with the DNC or the RNC. That's the only thing I can, that's the best explanation, and it's probably not a very good one, but. 
And you're in the way of the DNC. There is this weird uniformity. Oh, uh, well, it, but its effect is to ignore stories that are objectively the most important stories. I mean, wherever you fall on those questions, there's no like denying that the war in Ukraine is changing the world. It will change history. Most of the stuff is a footnote. That's a that's a book. And yet the coverage of it is like not even. Yeah. So, for example, the president. That, that's much more consequential. Well, it's the most consequential, Ultimately, but it's and, and yeah. the coverage of me, which is there's no questioning of these orthodoxies. And when it comes to the Ukraine war, I mean, we're being lied to about it. In what and, way? Well, I mean, we were lied to from the beginning. You know, we had this comic book depiction that which we see on every war. There's a bad guy who's like, uh, you know, in unspeakably evil. Yes. Who's planning world conquest or a terrorist attack on you know the on the on America, and we have to be the good guys and go in and, and stop it. And you know the Ukraine, the background of the Ukraine war is much more complex than that. You know the the U.S. has been involved, and in particularly the neocons in the White House. I wouldn't say particularly. I'd say a group of people that are known as neocons since 2001 have been talking about putting NATO in Ukraine. Now, in, and I'll give you some back, the background. In 1992, the walls came down and the Soviet Union collapsed. Gorbachev went to Tony Blair and to President Bush, who were you know, the, British, the UK and US presidents at that time, and said, I'm gonna do something extraordinary that basically is gonna have the rest of Russian history branding me as a traitor to my country. I'm going to withdraw 400,000 Soviet troops from East Germany, and I'm going to allow you to reunify Germany under NATO troops. So you're going to move NATO troops, a hostile, hostile force, into our barracks and our bases. I'm going to do that. And the only commitment I want from you is that once I allow Germany to reunify, to become part of NATO, that you will never move NATO further to the east because we're going to now release all of these uh, Soviet states that were part of the Soviet Union. They're going to become independent states, and we don't want NATO moving into those. And James Baker, who was the Secretary of State at that time, famously said, we, we promise that we will not move NATO one inch to the east. Gorbachev now did that, and he's now, you know, despised in, in Russia. Um, and, and then in 1996 and 1997, so five years later, Zbigniew Brzezinski, who was the first kind of the father of the neocon movement, the, neocon, well, the neocons um, represent in a, you know, uh, in a sentence, is that they were a group of people who believed, and you know, Donald Rumsfeld and Jonathan Yu and Paul Wolfowitz, Robert Kagan, Victoria Newland, who's now at the top wife, State Department yeah. official. Their belief was that the U.S. had won the Cold War, and that victory gave us the um, the privilege of dominating the world using our superior military unipower status and our superior military status for the next century. So. Their principal blueprint document is called Project for a New American Century. In other words, America would own the 21st century. So Brzezinski says, okay, we should start, start this process by moving NATO into all the former satellite states. 
Well, at that, and this was 1997, at that time, George Cannon was still around. Now, George Cannon, as you know, was the principal architect of the Cold War containment policy. He's, he's arguably the most important, most respected diplomat and statesman in American history. Oh, he said, if you do that, you are going to provoke a violent response from Russia. They cannot live with NATO on their borders. They cannot any more than we would live with, you know, with a Soviet alliance in Mexico and, and, uh, and Canada. Um, the, at that time, the, the, uh, uh, Bill Perry was, was Clinton's Secretary of State, and Bill Perry said, if you do this, if you go forward with this plan, I'm going to resign because it's so foolhardy. You are, you are forcing Russia into a violent military response. And the, so the U.S. ambassador to the Soviet Union um, at that time, uh, who, who is now head of the, of the CIA, said the same thing. It, it, it is, it's the worst mistake America can make to move NATO to the east. So we went ahead and did it. We moved it not, at one, not one inch, but 1,000 miles, 14 countries, and then we put nuclear-ready missile launchers, Aegis missile systems, which are made by Lockheed and can take Tomahawk missiles 12 minutes from Moscow. We could, in 12 minutes, decapitate the entire leadership of Russia. And we put those in Poland and Romania. And we then tried to move it into Ukraine, NATO into Ukraine. So you remember when my uncle, when, when Russia puts up, put missile systems, nuclear missile systems in Cuba, and my uncle would have had to invade, he was able, the reason Russia put them there then is because we had put nukes, Jupiter missiles, in Turkey and Italy. My uncle and father made a, um, a secret deal with Ambassador Dobrynin, where, we, where they said to him, look, we understand you're angry. You cannot live with Jupiter missiles in Turkey. That's why you put your missiles in Cuba. If you remove your missiles from Cuba within six months, we will remove ours from Turkey. But nobody says what the deal was. And that's what happened. So now we're back, and we've again put you know, nuclear-ready nuclear missile systems along right next to Russia. And now we want to go do the one thing that Russia has said, and Putin said again and again and again, this is a red line before Putin. The Russian leadership was saying, it is a red line. You cannot go into Ukraine. The Russians have been invaded three times from you. Our country's never been invaded. The Russians were invaded three times through Ukraine. The last time they were invaded, Hitler killed between 20 and 40 million Russians. Hitler killed one out of every seven Russians. In my uncle's speech to um, uh, his most famous speech in, in American University in, in 1963, in July of 1963, he said to the American people, he said, you know, we're all taught we won World War II, but we didn't win World War II. The Russians won it. And the sacrifice they made to destroy Hitler was beyond anything Americans can imagine. He was trying to tell the American people, you have to put your yourselves, ourselves in their position and understand what they're doing. And he said, uh, he said, a third of the country was leveled. Every city, the forest burned, the cities were leveled, the forests and fields burned. 
Imagine if that happened from the coast, the east coast of the United States, every city, forest and field from here to Chicago. That's what the Russians put up with. So, oh, we have to understand this, <laughs> that Ukraine is a red line. The invasion came through Ukraine and they can't live with it. It's, an, it's a security issue for them that is beyond our, almost beyond our comprehension. And so, you know, we've had- uh, but, So that suggests the point is war with Russia. The point was war with Russia. And in fact, you know, the neocon said that again and again, that our, and, and Biden, when he was at, so, and, and let me get back to that, okay? Because that is absolutely true. The, um, the Biden, you know, was as, well, first of all, in 2014, to go through the modern history, 2014, there are riots in, it's called the Madonna Rebellion in Ukraine which we're not told that we are financing those riots. The, the newspapers never told us, our government never told us. USAID, which is a CIA front, put $5 billion into funding those riots. Those riots lead to, the, uh, to a coup d'etat against the first elected, democratically elected government of the Ukraine. It was a government that refused to choose sides and to say, we're gonna be on the side of the West. So we wanted them out. A month before that government is overthrown, Victoria Newland, who's you know, the part of the, the centerpiece of the neocon ideology and who is now a high level official in the State Department, has a secret call with the US ambassador, which is tape recorded and is now public, which anybody can go and look up, where she is picking the new cabinet for the Ukraine which for Ukraine, which is, uh, you know, which is a US Western cabinet. So they're picking the new government a month before the old government is overthrown. Is that how democracy, is that democracy when Tory <laughs> Newland picks her government? Well, that's, that's the, the point is USAID doesn't really do, and the CIA don't do democracy. They, you know, the CIA has overthrown, I think 83 governments between 1947 and 1997. That's a third of the governments on earth and most of them were democracies. Oh, it doesn't do, it doesn't do democracy, it does good, it does. So then, you know, to put the rest of this history, and we put in a U.S., a Western government, the Russia, everybody says, well, oh, the Russians started this by invading Crimea. But put yourself in Putin's position. And I'm not an apologist for Putin, by the way. He went into Ukraine, it was illegal. My son went over there and fought against it, you know, and, and risked his life in the, in the Kharkiv rebellion. I'm not making excuses for him. What he did was brutal. It was illegal and it was unnecessary. But we have to understand our role in the provocations. And so, so if you're in Putin's position, now you're looking at Ukraine and Ukraine is being run by a, a pro-US government. What's the first thing he thinks? They're gonna take Vladivostok which is the port in the Crimea on the Black Sea, which has been a Russian port, their only warm water port for 347 years. It's where the Russian Navy is, their sub base, it's everything else. And he says, now this new government is gonna invite the US Navy in to take over our facilities. We gotta go in there and take it back. So he goes into Crimea, he goes in and takes Crimea without killing, without firing a shot or killing a certain, a, a, a single person. The, the Crimean population is, is largely Russian and they welcome the invasion. 
So, you know, again, I'm not making excuses for him, but I'm saying we have to understand, my uncle always said, we have to understand the, 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 um, the position of our adversaries and, you know, what, what forces are they dealing with? Um, so, so then in 20, then the Russians, now, now there's, you know, as soon as we put in that new government, the first rule they pass is to make the Russian language essentially illegal in Donbass and Lugansk, where 90% of the population are Russian. And they and there's then peaceful uprising, which people begin dying, you know, they, they turn violent. Now, which side made them violent is a dispute. But it's not a dispute that the Russians were now being treated, the Russian, ethnic Russian population in Ukraine is now being treated like redheaded stepchildren. They're not, you know, they're being slapped around and they're being abused and they're not being allowed to practice their culture or their language. And so um, there is a vote then in the, in, uh, in Donbass and Lugansk where they vote 90 to 10 to join Russia. Russia says no. Putin says no, I don't want you, but let's sign an agreement that protects you. So they put together an agreement with France, Germany, and Russia called the Minsk Accords. The Minsk Accords say leave Donbass and Lugansk as part of Ukraine, but make them semi-autonomous so they can speak their own language. And so the Russians who live there are going to be protected from violence by the government. And um, and the the only the the Russian parliament or the Ukrainian parliament won't ratify the Minsk Accords, but France agreed to it, Germany agreed to it, and Putin agreed to it. So then Zelensky runs in 2019. Zelensky is a comedian and he's an actor. And I'm not saying that in a derogatory way because my wife is a comedian and actor, but I'm saying it because here's a guy with no political background who wins the election with 90% of the vote. Why did he win the election? He won the election because he ran on a peace platform. He ran promising that he would sign the Minsk Accords. He gets into office the minute he gets there and he's told everybody, I'm gonna sign the Minsk Accords and settle the peace with Russia. He, he suddenly pivots and the we don't know what happened, but the the rational assumption is that the U.S. government told him he could not do that. So the Victoria Newland and, and Anthony Blinken and Avril Haines, you know, who's the DNI director of national intelligence, told him you cannot have a peace with Russia. Plus, people within you know ultra nationalists within Ukraine told him if you sign that, we're going to kill you. And a lot of people say. Uh, anyway, they threatened him with death, and that is pretty well documented. Then Russia invades, but Russia only invades, and so we say, "Oh, look, he, you know, Putin is trying to take over Europe." But, but they only send in forty thousand troops. I think there's three and a half million people in Kiev, so they clearly did not want to take the country. He wanted, he clearly wanted to bring people to the negotiating table. He did not send in enough troops to take all of, of Ukraine. So, um, so then, and, they, and Zelensky comes to the negotiating tables and we now know this, and this is recent information. In March of 2022, Zelensky and Putin 
agree on a peace agreement that's based upon the Minsk Accords. There's, it's like Minsk Accords 2.0. And Zelensky initials it, the Russians initial it, and Russia begins withdrawing its troops from Ukraine. And what happens? President Biden sends Boris Johnson over there to torpedo the agreement and make, make Zelensky tear it up. And then we go to war, 350,000 Ukrainian kids are now dead. And, um, and you know, 40 or 50,000 Russians. So, and, and, and that month, April, that April is when they signed it in March. April, we, Boris Johnson was sent over there to torpedo it. Um, and that month, Lloyd Austin, who is the Secretary of Defense under, uh, under Biden, is asked, why are we at war with, with, uh, in Ukraine? And he said, our purpose in this war is to exhaust the Russian army and degrade its capacity to fight anywhere else in the world. But that is not what they're telling us. But, but do they... And Biden that month says, when he's asked about the war in Ukraine, he says, our purpose is regime change in Russia. So again, that has nothing to do with Ukraine. What that means is the Ukraine is a proxy in essentially a struggle between two superpowers, between Russia and the United States. And, you know, we've now committed $113 billion over there. And just to put that in perspective, the total budget of EPA is $12 billion. <laughs> the total budget of the CDC is $12 billion. We're sending $113 billion over. When, um, when uh, Mitch McConnell was asked, how can we do this? You know, when our country, when you're cutting food stamps and cutting Medicare, cutting food stamps to 30 million Americans, cutting Medicare to 15 million Americans, but they're not going to have any health insurance. How can we spend 113 billion over there? If we, if we don't, if we had that 113 billion here, we wouldn't have had to cut one food stamp payment. And he said, well, don't worry. The money's not staying in Ukraine. It's all coming back to military contractors in the United States. Well, so that's interesting because then you look at, you know, who owns those military contractors and, and you see who gets on CNN to, to pump up the Ukraine war. It's a bunch of former generals and colonels and Pentagon people. But if you go in and, and CNN never and MSNBC never do this, but if you go look at those guys, they're all people who are working for Raytheon and General Dynamics and Boeing and Lockheed. So they're generals, but they're not identified that, you know, they're actually working for the military contractors who are cashing in on the war. And then, you know, those military contractors in turn are owned by three companies. All of them are owned by three companies, by BlackRock, State Street and Vanguard. And, um, and you know, the inflation that from printing the money to fund the war and to fund the 20, 16 trillion we spent to fund the lockdowns, the COVID lockdowns, eight trillion we've spent on these wars since 2020, all of them losing wars, all of them that made our country less safe. Look at what this war is doing. We have pushed Russia into the embrace of China, which is the worst foreign policy outcome imaginable. It is not good for the national security of our country. And we're now, have, have, have Putin's back to the wall. Well, Putin is the world's leading nuclear superpower. We aren't. He's got a thousand more nukes than we do, and their nukes are much better than ours. 
they can shoot down our nukes. We can't shoot down theirs. Oh, you know, we're, we are going up against, a, a, you know, we are provoking a, 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 a confrontation that could very easily lead to nuclear war, you know, and I've, I've talked to. Wait, can I ask you to pause there for a second? Yeah. Everything you've said is checkable and rational, yeah. and you're extrapolating out toward the future, which is easy to envision. Like, I don't really see, I don't understand how our policymakers aren't reaching the same conclusions you just reached. Like, they think that war with Russia is where we're going to win? We, we cannot win this war. Well, of course, so what are they doing? Like, I don't it understand. It would be like Mexico beating us in a war. They're not going to let the Ukraine, they cannot lose this war. And, you know, anybody who thinks Russia is not up to the war, go look at the Netflix documentary on Stalingrad and look at the sacrifice they were willing to, that Russians are willing to make. Putin today, you know, we thought this was going to hurt him. He's more popular than he's ever been. All the U.S. polling firms show him polling at 90% popularity. And, and you know, in and, Russia. In Russia, among the Russians are supporting him, and he also, you know, we were we were going to break him with the sanctions. We did the opposite. We made him more powerful. He's now insulated from the, you know, from the trade and the international banking system. He's now got this great trade agreement with China. He's now, you know, engineering the creation of of BRICS. Which we, which has forty leading nations around the world turning against the U.S. currency, his reserve currency, and adopting his petrocurrency or the Chinese currency. That is the worst threat to the United States. That will plan, if we lose that status as the world's reserve currency. You know, it, the Great Depression will look like a cakewalk. So I agree with all of that, and and all of it. I mean, your position to my ears sounds moderate and obvious. I just don't understand how the Secretary of State, how, how the President, how his, his competent advisors can't have reached the same conclusions. Like, what are they thinking? Uh, well, you know, the, unfortunately, I think, and I, don't, you know, I share your, your sense of mystery about that. But I don't, you know, because what you're saying is not crazy. It's not like some uh, far out I, theory. Uh, I mean, the only way I can explain it, and I'm not, you know, I don't like to put look into other people's heads and, yes. and tell why they're doing one thing or another. But President Biden has always been a very pro-war president, and you know, he was the one senator that stood out supporting the Iraq War. My uncle and Obama and and many men, and you know, Hillary also. But Biden has always been a reliable you know, gung-ho, let's go to war guy. And um, so I don't think, um, to the extent that he's thought this all through, I just, I think it it follows, it's consistent with his historical instincts. And then he's surrounded by people who are, you know, these are the same people who got us in the Iraq war. I know. Look at what happened. Let, let's just, let me go through what happened in Iraq, just for, you know, give me one minute to summarize the, you know, we were tricked into Iraq by the neocons, who told us that Saddam Hood had something to do with the World Trade Center, which was a lie, that he had planted the anthrax attacks that came five days after the World Trade Center, which was a lie. That turned out to be, you know, the intelligence agencies and the U.S. military at Fort Detrick. That anthrax that the FBI found came from Fort Detrick. So it was somebody in the U.S. government who sent it to Patrick Leahy and Tom Daschle, who were the two senators in the week after 9-11 who were trying to block the Patriot Act. And it shut down Congress and the Patriot Act went through. 
And oh, um, so the, the, and then they told wait, wait, us. Wait, 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 really? Yeah, yes. Uh, and the FBI, after a year of investigation, traced the anthrax. It was a kind of Ames anthrax that was weaponized. And the only source of that in the world could be the U.S. government. And they traced it to Fort Detrick. In so Maryland. the bio lab there. Yes, the bio lab at Fort Detrick, the CIA bio lab at Fort Detrick. Oh, somebody sent that in at the time the Patriot Act was being debated. And the two leading guys who were blocking it was Patrick Leahy and Tom Daschle were the recipients of it. It shut down Congress. The Patriot Act goes through. And what does the Patriot Act do? Two things. I mean, it, it, it basically gets rid of a, lot, a large part of the United States Constitution Bill of Rights and allows spying by intelligence agencies on the American people. And it reopens the bioweapons arms race because bioweapons were shut down in 1969 by, um, we, we saw, you know, Nixon did this incredible thing of closing Fort Detrick, shutting them down and saying, we're no longer making bioweapons and then got everybody to sign a treaty in 73. Well, to, to bioweapons, the Patriot Act has a provision in it that says we're not walking away from the Geneva Convention, which makes you, it's a hanging offense to develop bioweapons. We're not walking away from, um, from the bioweapons charter of 1972-1973, but we are adopting a new rule that any federal official who violates those acts cannot be prosecuted. So it reopened, it effectively- <laughs> A crime without a punishment. Yeah, but anyway, um, you know, anyway, I forgot where we... I mean, so, so let me add, it's an interesting segue, because <laughs> Toria Newland kind of blithely announced during congressional testimony last year that, oh, by the way, we have these bio labs in Ukraine. Yeah. And that was like kind of ignored, and the people who covered it got attacked for covering it. But the fact remains there are U.S. bio labs in Ukraine. Why would we have bio labs in Ukraine? Um, we have bio lab labs in Ukraine because we're developing bioweapons. And... You know, and those bioweapons are using all kinds of new synthetic uh, biology and CRISPR technology and genetic engineering techniques that were not available to previous generation. And they can make frightening, frightening stuff. Um, what happened was, and uh, you know, when when we walked away from when the Patriot Act reopened the bioweapons arm race in two thousand one. The Pentagon began putting a lot of money into bioweapons, but they were nervous at that time because if you violate Geneva, the Geneva Convention, it's a hanging offense. And they weren't sure that that provision in the Patriot Act would actually hold up as a loophole to treaties that had been ratified by Congress. So they were nervous about actually going full force into bioweapons development. So they transferred the authority for uh, biosecurity to one agency in the, in the HHS uh, called the National Institute for Infectious and Allergic Diseases run by Anthony Fauci. So Anthony Fauci got all the responsibility for bioweapons development. He got at that time a 68% raise from the Pentagon in order to do that work. Oh, and that's why he was the highest paid official in American, in the American government of, you know, four, four million people in the American, he's the high, he gets more money, he got more money, $450,000 a year than the president 
that any Supreme Court judge, any, any member of Congress, he was the highest paid. And it's because he got that 68% raise from the Pentagon to do bioweapons development. Now, when you do bioweapons development, every bioweapon needs a vaccine. So you develop them side by side. Because in 100% of the cases, when you deploy a bioweapon, there's blowback. Your side also gets sick. So in order to deploy one offensively, you need a vaccine to um, to counter it. So you need to vaccinate your team before you deploy it. So those two things are, are developed through a, a, a field of science called gain of function science, where you take infectious, where you take an infectious microbe and you amplify its infectivity, or you make it jump species so it may kill monkeys, now you make it kill humans. And you adopt it that way, and there's all kinds of methods. But, and then you make it immune to antibiotics and to therapeutic drugs and to other therapies. So it's actually the inverse of medicine. For 2,800 years since Hippocrates, doctors have been trying to figure out how to make microbes less infectious and less deadly and develop antibiotics and therapeutics to do that. Well, this, the guys who are involved in this, there's 36,000 what are called life scientists, but they're actually death scientists, um, who are now employed full-time in developing you know, microbes that will can be used to kill people. But and, given the experience we just had three years ago, yeah. where a virus from a bio lab yeah. upturned, upturned So, so let, let me just finish this brief history about what yeah. happened. In 2014, three of those microbes escaped. You know, um, Fauci built labs all over the country in Galveston and Boston, everywhere. There are BSL-4 labs. We don't even know how many there are, BSL-3 and BSL-4. We have no idea how many there are. There's, um, you know, we've counted them. I have a new book coming out that goes through the ones we know. But there are many secret ones that people don't know about. And they're doing it here in the United States. But in 2014, three bugs escaped from three different labs. And they were high-profile breaks, and they were very dangerous things, smallpox and, uh, and a couple of other uh, bad, bad, bad microbes. The public learned about it, and there was a lot of publicity, and Congress held hearings. 300 scientists wrote President Obama and said, you've got to shut down Anthony Fauci because he's going to create a microbe that will, uh, that will cause a global pandemic. And so Obama signed a moratorium that shut down the 18 worst of Anthony Fauci's experiments, where most of them were taking place in Galveston and in North Carolina uh, by a scientist called Ralph Barrick down there. Uh, and, uh, and instead of obeying that law, Anthony Fauci shifted a lot of his operations offshore. And those operations ended up, most of them in the Wuhan lab, which is a military lab, and that the Chinese run the People's Liberation Army. And, uh, and then a lot of them went to the Ukraine. So a lot of that science now, and it's funded not, you know, Fauci was funding lots of it. But then the, the other government agencies began to get confidence in, you know, their ability to get away with it. And most of it is being funded by the Department of Defense. The most of all, the biggest single funder is USAID, which is, you know, a CIA cutout. Do you think the lab leak was a leak or was it intentional? Uh, well, I, the best science shows that, indicates that the people who were working on um, a particular 
coronavirus technology that was taught by Ralph Barrick, funded, it was developed by the U.S. government, by NIH, with NIH money. It was then taught to a, a group of scientists, Xi Zheng Li, who's famous, the bat lady, and then her assistant, Ben Hu, and a couple of other scientists at the Wuhan lab. Barrick taught them two things. He taught them, one, how to engineer the spike with a fern cleave that could attach to the ACE2 receptors of the human lungs and make people sick and spread you know, through the air. He taught them another trick that has nothing to do with public health, conceivably, which is a technique called seamless ligation, which is a technique for disguising the evidence of human tampering. So you can make the microbe and then you can erase the evidence that human beings actually made that microbe. And, um, and, and Ben Hu was leading that research. Ben Hu then got sick with two other of his fellow researchers, and they ended up in the hospital with COVID symptoms in November of 2019. So I, it, it appears that Ben Hu, and then Ben Hu, the, the subway line that goes past the Wuhan lab and goes straight to the airport, all the original cases were along that subway line. And so the intelligence, the intelligence agencies that are actually being honest about that, and most of them are not, um, believe that it, Ben Hu and two other researchers got sick in the, that the most likely scenario is that Ben Hu and two other researchers who working, were working on infectious coronavirus bioweapons got sick and got with and they didn't know it and so they were riding that subway line every day and infecting people before they actually got symptoms and that's probably what happened but when nobody knows um you've said a number of times publicly many times publicly and i think it's now been confirmed that cia had knowledge of at, at best had knowledge of your uncle's assassination new things it's still being hidden now what do you think um and that's obviously true what do you think the motive was in that killing? Well, I think the people who were involved in it, the specific people who were involved in it were, um, were almost all associated with the Miami station, which was the largest CIA station at that time. And it was basically, uh, uh, it was the Cuban station. And the people um, who were involved in that station were uh, people like Bill Harvey um, and David Atlee Phillips, who was clearly involved in my uncle's assassination. He was, uh, by all evidence, he was Lee Harvey Oswald's handler at the CIA. Um, and, and then E. Howard Hunt, who made a confession, David Morales, who is the, you know, the chief hitman. He ran the Operation Phoenix program in Vietnam. He killed 10,000 people, civilians over there, murdered them. And he, he also gave a confession of being um, in Dallas. And then there were, most of the people were associated with Cuba and the, you know, the, and, and the impetus came from that group of people who were, um, who were angry at my uncle for not sending an air cover during the pigs invasion. And then even more so after the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis, um, my uncle, then developed this friendship with Khrushchev, and he shut down all of the Cuban attacks by Alpha 66 and these other groups that were harassing Cuba. They were sinking ships, sinking Russian ships. 
they were operating flotillas out of South Florida and, and doing raids on, and my uncle and father sent the Coast Guard down to confiscate their boats and their weaponry and to arrest the ones that continued to do it. And those people, those individuals um, were also, you know, have been traced and, and tracked the assassination um, and, and uh, uh, you know, over the years. And they're now, there's been, you know, there's millions of documents. I mean, they, you know, they, but, but, but why not release all the documents? What doesn't make sense to me is why not just admit it now? I mean, no, no one you describe would be is still alive. There's no, no living everybody, person. everybody now, all virtually. So why wouldn't Biden declassify these well, documents? I, I don't know why. And why would Trump not? Trump I agree. Trump. I totally. Why? Well, I, I know why Trump wouldn't because why? he was convinced by Mike Pompeo not to. So, and it's not an excuse, but not, you know, he yeah, but we don't, we don't know what, 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 what Mike Pompeo said to him. That, no, but that's the point. Like, yeah. What, what I mean, could the possibly law, the law be requires the... them to do it. So they, the, the JFK assassinations law required that all documents be released by 2017. Yeah. And, um, and yet they refuse. So they, uh, but it suggests that there's, there's something about 4,000 of them. Um, that are left, and you you have to assume. And again, I don't try. I try not to talk about things that I cannot document. Right. Um, but I I think there's a, it's a fair assumption that they're not protecting individuals; that they're protecting some institutional interest. Um, What's the but, most powerful institution in America? Well, life? I, you know, I, I, again, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I, I don't know. I don't know. And, I, and you know, I. You don't know. No, yeah, don't it's, know. but it's, it's, uh, there must be something because like, why wouldn't they just release yeah. it? And by the way, for people, you know, you, you and I having this conversation about who did the assassination, why they did it, a lot of that is, uh, the stuff that I've told you, and I've tried to th stick to things that, you know, uh, that are documentable, and the names, that, et cetera. But for people who want a real, you know, kind of a panoramic view of what happened, I think the best book that's been written about this is Jim Douglas's book, which is called The Unspeakable, because he's done something um, that, you know, after the Warren Commission, that became the orthodoxy. And the New York Times and all the major news uh, organizations uh, have enforced that orthodoxy. And anybody who challenged that orthodoxy becomes a conspiracy theorist. And in fact, in 1967, the CIA sent a letter out to an, uh, a telecom out to all of its Operation Mockingbird people, which are all the the assets it had in the American press, more than 400 people, editors, senior editors, senior writers in the American press saying, from now on, anybody who questions the single gunman theory of the of the Kennedy assassination be, should be characterized as a conspiracy theorist. And they didn't coin the word conspiracy theory, but they popularized it with that memo. They sent a memo out to all their stations saying that talk should be discouraged. So um, uh, those, uh, you know, but what happened after that is then in 1979, the House Assassinations Committee met for a year and a half, and they looked at much more evidence than the Warren Commission did, including, you know, Alan Dulles. Alan Dulles had run the Warren Commission. He was the head of the CIA when my uncle fired. When my uncle died, he said, uh, I'm glad the little shit is dead. He thought he was a god. 
That's what he said to a young reporter. And then he becomes head of the commission that, is, you know, it, it shouldn't have been called the Warren Commission. It should be called the Dulles, because Earl Warren was, had a full-time job at the Supreme Court. The only, and the, all the other guys on the Warren Commission had full-time jobs as senator and congressman. The only guy who went to every meeting and, you know, looked at every piece of evidence and developed the questions for the witnesses was Alan Dulles. He was running the entire Warren Commission. And he should have been the prime suspect in the, in the crime. And he was communicating secretly with the people at the CIA, with David Atlee Phillips, with George Johannides, who was the CIA uh, liaison, telling them what, you know, what questions were going to be asked and what they should reveal, and with J. Edgar Hoover at the same time. Well, the whole thing was a coordinated kind of uh, kabuki theater. But then Congress goes back and investigates it in 79. And Congress then comes back after a year and a half seeing a lot more stuff and says, uh, and they conclude this was a conspiracy. Yes. So they make that official, you know, so anybody who says it was just Lee Harvey Oswald is, di is differing from the people who actually made the investigation. So, so given and that. Most of the people on that staff who I've talked to believe that it was the CIA. And as you know, at that time, the di dispute between them was between, was it the mob and the CIA because there was a lot of mob involvement. Uh, you know, Johnny Roselli, um, Sam Giancana, uh, who was the Chicago boss, Santos Traficante, who was the Tampa boss, and Carlos Marcello, who was the uh, New Orleans boss, were all involved. And they all had casinos in Havana, and they were working with the CIA to assassinate Castro. So they had hitmen at their disposal, and they were training Cubans who were sharpshooters for Batista as hitmen. And I've talked to some of the hitmen. I've talked to Antonio Vecchiano who was involved and who was also David Atlee Phillips' um, uh, handler. David Atlee Phillips was his handler, and he was Lee Harvey Oswald's handler. So Veggiano met Oswald in Dallas in, uh, I think, in September of, of, um, of 1963. Oh, I've talked to, you know, the people who were actually working for the CIA and the mob at that time, you know, to kill Castro and how they were then pivoted uh, to this, you know, some of them were pivoted to this new project. If you became president, if you become president, what do you do about those four million federal employees, about the agencies which are running effectively as autonomous governments within our government? Like how yeah. do you, the last president, when was the last president who controlled the agencies? And how would you do it? I don't know. I, I feel like I'm probably, and I don't want to seem like, you know, I'm being vain, but I feel but because of the, the confluence of my experiences over the past four years that I'm actually probably the only one that can unravel that agency capture. And, and let me tell you this, my daughter-in-law, who is co-running my campaign with Dennis Kucinich, Amaryllis Fox, um, was a CIA agent in the clandestine service for most of her career. And uh, what she'll tell you, and you know, she has a very sanguine view of the CIA, and the same as mine. Um, and also understands all this evidence that the agency, you know, was involved in the um, in the murder of my uncle and and the cover up, continues to be involved in the cover up. But what Amaryllis will tell you is that of the twenty four thousand people who work for the agency, that twenty thousand of them are patriotic Americans and good public servants. 
and that there's there's some people mainly in Glen, in a plant division. The espionage division, the CIA, is you know is made up of extraordinary people, principally who are um, who are doing an important job of protecting our country. The espionage division is the division that does um, that does uh, information gathering and analysis, and the president needs that. The plans division is the action division. They're the ones that assassinate people, fix elections, uh, you know, overthrow governments, and do all the. Um, the things that I think we're paying for in our foreign policy today and in our domestic policy. My father was going to separate those divisions. My uncle ultimately was going to do that too. My uncle thought the CIA, you know, he came out of his office during the Bay of Pigs and he said, I want to take the CIA, shatter it into a thousand pieces and scatter it to the winds. He then asked my father to run the agency. He said, either you're the only one I trust to do this. And my father said, and my grandfather said, you can't do that. You can't, it, it would be like Molotov and Stalin. You can't have the, the brother of the president running a secret spy agency with all this extraordinarily hidden power. So they brought in John McComb to run it, but John McComb, you know, was not able to handle it. And, um, and my father, a week before he died, told one of his closest friends, Pete Hamill, who you may have known, but he was- Pete Hamill, the journalist? Yeah, the journalist. Yeah, of course. Um, he told Pete Hamill, Pete Hamill said, what are you gonna do about the CIA? And my father said, I'm gonna separate the plans division from uh, espionage, and that's the only way to make it work. And that still makes a lot of sense today. Incidentally, I had dinner with Mike Pompeo, I don't know, three weeks ago. And he said something really interesting to me. Which Wait, is, you had dinner with Mike Pompeo? Yeah, in Las Vegas. Vegas. Yeah. And he said something. <laughs> what was that? Like? I, 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 it was it was a, it was the weirdest dinner I've ever been to. If I told you the other people were at that dinner, well, because I just can't imagine two. <laughs> I know Mike Pompeo. I'm not attacking Mike Pompeo, but I can't imagine two you know, people always, with more different views. No, no, I've always, um, you know, my, my I have a kind of natal hostility toward Mike Pompeo, but I never knew him. And, but, you know, just because well, he was, for people who don't you know, know, he was the CIA director and, and he was Secretary of State under Trump. And, um, but he's a, he's an interesting guy. He's smart. Very smart. Uh, he's Harvard, I think he went to Harvard Law School. And he did. Harvard undergrad, and, and I think he had a military career. Army officer, yep. Uh, and he, um, you know, he's, he's by all, on paper, he's kind of a great American by all, you know, on, you know, his CV is extraordinary. Oh, um, and you never know, you know, you make judgments about people before you meet them. And my judgment about him, I still don't know what to think of him, but I, but this, what he but said. So wound up at dinner, I'm sorry. Yeah, Bobby Kennedy, and Mike Pompeo in Vegas at dinner. If I'd stumbled across that, I would have stopped. <laughs> it wasn't just the two of us, it was me. The rest of the group makes the story even weirder, so I'm not. I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm not even gonna, I, I don't know if I'll even go there, but, uh, <laughs> but he said to me before dinner, you know, I was, I had a moment with him. Um, and he said to me, when, he said, you know, when I was at the CIA, I did not do what I should have done to fix that agency. And he said, um, you know, I, uh, and he, he was expressing regret and he said, and then he turned to me and like looked me dead in the eye and he said, the entire upper echelon of that agency is made up of 
individuals who do not believe in the democratic institutions of the United States of America. That's a quote. And I, but so it was Mike Pompeo who uh, convinced Trump not to release the yeah, so file. I, and it was my, a guy who worked for Mike Pompeo texted me the day after I revealed that those files showed CIA complicity in your uncle's death, which they do, because I talked to someone who read them. And I said that on Fox News, and I got a text from a guy who works for Mike Pompeo informing me that I had just broken federal law, and that anyone who had told me that was a felon uh, because we had revealed classified information. And I said, wait a second, that classified information suggests the US government was involved in the murder of an American president. Yeah, that, that's Mike Pompeo's position on that. Yeah. So it's a little bit weird for him to say, I think. Well, there's a billion documents classified. Yeah, I know. Top secret, so, you know, they can call it, they can stamp that stamp on anything they want to. That's, That's a incredible. lawyer's trick, you know, to, to put. And he was also behind keeping, uh, convincing Trump not to pardon Assange. Yeah, well, you know, that confirms my earlier assessment of uh, of Mike Pompeo. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. You like him? No, it says a lot. Okay, so you have um, there's a documentary called Midnight at the Border uh, about your visit to the border, uh, California, uh, Arizona border with Mexico, and I just want to play a clip from it for our uh, for people who haven't seen it. We did two weeks uh, to travel from Senegal to Nicaragua. After Nicaragua, Honduras, Guatemala, Mexico, and here, I'm going to New York to join my uncle. My dream is to live the, the dream American, to live in America, to work and to help my family. We coordinate with the airport in Phoenix and then out they go to the final destination the same day. Yeah, I hope to begin a new life. Yeah, my bro brother lives here. Uh, he's a citizen. Hey, good luck, goodbye. Most people bring the money or have a sponsor that buys their ticket. What happens if, if a family doesn't have the money to buy the plane ticket? Uh, well, FEMA reimburses says we can, we can buy that ticket and-, and uh, Oh, you the, buy the ticket for it? Yeah. What'd you learn from that? Okay, you know, what I saw was so extraordinary that it took me three days to even understand what I was looking at. Um, because <laughs> the first night I, I land, I go to Yuma and I get to the wall at, um, at 2 a.m. And I watch the first group, there's a gap in the wall there and there, and I watch the first group come across, which was about 100, uh, 110 um, men from West Africa, mainly from Ghana, they're all, you know, sort of military age men from Ghana. And by calling them military age men, I'm not making implicate any implications about what they're here for. I'm just saying, it's just a way of describing them. They were people, you know, between 18 and 25. Oh God, so I expected to see a lot of Central Americans coming up, you know, and then, um, and that was not what I saw. And then the next group was, uh, again, about the same number, there were two busloads of people, and I interviewed every one of them. I talked to each one, and I, and I want to say this, what we're seeing there, you know, a lot of people come from the, to this issue of, you know, I, I think we need to close that wall. We need to close the border right now, and I'm going to explain to you why. But a lot of people come to this issue from a sort of a nationalistic or a, even a racist or, um, or uh, 
you know, xenophobic. But Hepash, and I'm not coming from that place. I'm coming from a place of compassion and a place of, um, you know, just concern for our country. And, uh, and you know, this is a, this, this is a heartbreaking humanitarian crisis and everything that happens to these migrants along the way is terrible. Oh, the next group that came in, what, what's happening to our country is a catastrophe. And by the way, I was a person who ridiculed Trump's wall. Okay, so, and now I've been down there and I've talked to everybody down there. And, um, you know, I have a different position. I don't think you need to build a 2200 mile physical barrier from, you know, San Diego to Brownsville, Texas, but we definitely need physical barriers in the densely populated area, we definitely, because this, we cannot survive with what's happening there now. The next group that came over were, um, again, about 110 people. There are two busloads. The cartels dropped them on right on the other side of the wall in these buses, and there's 55 people per bus. Oh, um, the next group, there were people from Azerbaijan, from Kazakhstan, from Uzbekistan, from Afghanistan, from Pakistan, uh, from Tibet, Nepal, uh, and many from India, and the most came from China. Um, there were only two families we met the entire night who were from um, who were from uh, Latin America, none from Central America. Interesting, one from Colombia and one from Peru, and they were the only ones who had legitimate claims. They, you know, of asylum claims. Everybody else we talked to said, "I'm here to have a better life." Well, that is not. If you want, if that's why you come to America. Then you have to go through the front door. You, you know, go to the embassy. Right? Yeah, you go, you go to the embassy. So they don't even have a legitimate, any legitimate claim to be in the United States. Nevertheless, the the border patrol and the border patrol is so uh, disillusioned and discouraged. There's nine of the border patrolmen we were told had committed suicide in the last year because of what they're being forced to do. They are not protecting the border. They what they do is they fingerprint, they can only hold the, the migrants for 72 hours. They fingerprint them and they see if, they're, if they have a criminal record. If they have a criminal record, they're put in a different process. But otherwise, they're then asked where they want to go. And if they don't have a plane ticket, they are brought to the airport. The DHS purchased them a ticket and sends them anywhere they want to go in the United so States. So the country's getting poorer every year. Our country's getting poorer every yeah. year. We're in a poor place right now. Well, how, who came up with, I mean, why do we owe plane tickets to people who come here illegally? It, 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 it's, it ha, as far as I can tell, and there's a lot of evidence for this, and it's in our film, is that the Biden administration came in, you know, in the same position I was, was which is, which is the wall is bad, but more, more importantly, anything Donald, any idea that Donald Trump right. had is a bad idea. So they just opened the border and they've had this open border policy where um, they, they have not hired the judges. That's the most important thing that needs to be done. The judges need to be hired so that these cases, the asylum case, uh, cases can be adjudicated right at the border and people who are not entitled to asylum are sent back. Um, but that's not what's happening. What happens is they're all given claims and they're told to appear in court and they go to an arraignment 
fairly soon after arriving in Boston or New York or Miami or wherever, Minneapolis, wherever they're going. And then they're given a court date, which on average is seven years out. So they're, uh, there's, so then they're, they're in. I hope next time I get arrested, I get the same courtesy. Yeah. Oh, they're in um, our country then for seven years. But, and let me just tell you from their point of view what's happened. First of all, the cartels are now controlling our immigration policy in the United States. All of these people who came across, came across knowing exactly what was going to happen to them because they had seen it on advertisements the cartels are sending around the world on TikTok and on YouTube that tells you what you need to do to get in, where you, what airports you fly into, what visas you get, how to get them, and how to get to the cartel parking lots where the buses will take you. Some of them fly into Nicaragua, most of them fly to directly to Mexico City and from anywhere in the world. These are not, you know, Central American, Latin American, they're coming from everywhere. They come to, they fly to Mexico City, the cartels assist them getting a Mexican visa, and then they are put on a domestic flight to Mexicali, and in Mexicali there's a big parking lot with, uh, with buses operated by the cartels. The cartels charge them between $10,000 and $15,000 a piece to get through, and then they drive them up to the wall and they unload them. We watch them unloading them on the other side. They, um, large numbers of them get, um, get abused. They get extorted, uh, they get exploited, they get robbed, raped, beaten. Uh, the Peruvian family that I met had every uh, penny taken from me. And he said, my whole life savings was taken from me. There's a tree that we could see from where we were in the day when it was daylight. It's called the rape tree, where the cartels extract final payment from women who are crossing the border. Um, if there are attractive women that they, in their view, and I, I don't mean physically attractive, but attractive uh, for whatever their purpose is, to sell or to, you know, uh, to traffic or whatever, or children. Um, those children are separated out. We, uh, uh, the Colombian family had lost a girl, and a teenage girl. And, you know, the father was desperate, and they, they, she had been separated from them by the cartels before they passed. Oh, my gosh. And 85,000 children have disappeared in this process. It, it, it's, it's monstrous. So all the, so if then, I can... But then let me tell you this. They get into our country and there's a lot of people who are well-meaning, mainly liberal people who care, who you know, see themselves as deeply caring people who say, we should have sanctuary cities and we should, you know, these people should be treated with dignity, but what really happens to them in real life is that they get here and then they, for, for seven years, none of them are legal. So they are now subject to terrible exploitation by uh, unscrupulous employers all over this country. They're getting paid $6 or $5 an hour because they have no leverage in their employer. Of course. And that dampens the wages well, for every other American. That's exactly right. It steals and, the leverage from American workers, too. And, and there are 16 million of them here now. And uh, they're crushing the social safety systems, social safety nets in cities like New York has 95,000 of them have landed in New York. 
New York is now thinking of turning Roosevelt Island into an open air refugee camp. And there's a proposal that was on Bloomberg of turning Central Park or parts of it into open air camps for uh, for migrants. Oh, and that, you know, Eric Adams, who's the mayor, has been saying this has got to end. We, you know, we have to close the border. And a lot of these mayors who were people who were saying we, you know, we're sanctuary cities and getting that, you know, uh, uh, you know, aligning themselves with that are now seeing what the, it really means. And it, it does not mean human treating people humanely. It is the worst possible thing we can do. Meanwhile, Seven million have come across in three years. Seven million illegally. In that same time, there's only been 3.1 million legal immigrants. So these are the people who waited in line. For every one of them, there are more than two illegal ones coming across and taking those places. And that, you know, a lot of the uh, anyway, the, you know, the, it's not a, it's not something that's sustainable. It's something that needs to end right away. And that that if it, the, the cartels which are making billions, the cartel, the Mexican drug cartels are literally running U.S. immigration policy this time, not the president of the United Dis States. And, cor and corrupting the Southwest United States. Last question, will you succeed in getting a debate with Biden, do you think? Um, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I think it's not very democratic to not do the debate. Um, I hope that he will debate me, and I, I can tell you this, and I, I also hope that he'll come out and campaign, because I'm seeing a vision of America, and you know, both Trump and Biden are, are boasting about the, about the economic prosperity that they've brought to our country. They're, it's unusual, there are two former presidents running against each other. Both of them are, are proclaiming their, their um, their economic record, but I'm seeing uh, things in this country that I never believed that I would see in the United States. People living with, in a level of desperation that I, you know, what I, I, I don't know, I've, I've talked about, I have a friend called Keith Amato, who was, and you know, I represented commercial fishermen for almost all my career as an environmental lawyer. And he's one of my closest friends. And he, um, he's been, he ran, he worked hard his whole life fishing out of Wellfleet and P-Town and, uh, and Chatham. And, but, and his, his son-in-law now owns a fishing business, but he has no pension and he has no, and he's on full disability. He had a lot of injuries and a lot of damage during his life. Oh, so he was collecting food stamps, $283 he was getting a month and it's critical to his survival. Even then he was saying, he was telling me, you know, I have to switch recipes to, make, to be able to get through the through the checkout line, you know, I have to buy cheaper recipes and get fillers, etc. And in the last two years, the price of food, because to fund these wars that we're you know we're funding, they print money, and that means inflation, and that's a tax on the poor. Oh, the price of food has gone up by thirty eight percent. The price of of basic food stuffs. Um, chicken, eggs, and milk have gone up 78%. So his food stamps were 78%, you know, less valuable. On March 1st of this year, he got a phone call from the, a government phone call, robocall. The recorded voice told him that he was getting his food stamps cut to $23 a month, so 90%. 30 million Americans got that phone call. 
And, um, you know, that's the same month we ratcheted, ratcheted up our contributions to the Ukraine at, at to Ukraine at 30, at 113 billion. And we print, the Fed printed 300 billion unanticipated dollars to pay for the failure of the Silicon Valley Bank. There's lots of money for, for and, we, and we, we began cutting 15 million people from the welfare rolls. Since then, 4 million have been cut. This is on Politico this morning from, from the Medicare rolls. So there's no money for poor Americans. And the people that I see are living because of the inflation and because of what's happening at this, with this desperation. The average wage in this country is now $5,000 left less than the cost of, um, of basic goods, of food, transportation, and housing. So half of Americans are making up that gap by putting it on their credit card bills. And this week, we passed $1.1 trillion in credit card debt. That's the first time in history. Most of that, or $330 billion of that, has been in the Biden and Trump administration. Two men who are saying, I, you know, I've, I'm helping America. The trillion dollar in credit card debt, and those people are paying 22% interest. If the mafia did that, it would be called loan sharking. Not dischargeable in bankruptcy, by the right? way. Right, and it can't be discharged. Oh, you're, I'm meeting people who are, you know, couples who are sitting at their dining room tables and trying to figure out how, how this math works for them because they can't. They're, they're having to make choices. People in this country are choosing between food and gasoline and, and food and medicine. And they're, they're listening to a, a little baby crying in the room next door, young couples. And having to have to wonder whether that baby is fifty dollars sick or a hundred dollars sick or five hundred or fifteen hundred dollars sick before they bring them to a hospital. And you know, my wife and I were talking about it the other night, and we were talking about this epidemic of depression and mental illness and anxiety that is afflicting Americans. You know, the deterioration, the sense that the wheels are falling off. And she said, you know, that's the way I felt when she was living in poverty. She said that's the way I felt when the engine light came on my car because I knew. There was no money to pay it. And you have all these Americans now who are living hand to mouth and, uh, and they do not feel that anybody is listening to them in the political process. They feel they've been completely abandoned by the Democratic Party and the Republican Party and that those parties are now serving elites and, um, and that uh, you know, their voices aren't being heard. And particularly now, you know, the Democratic Party has had this very interesting shift where when I grew up, um, my, when my uncle was president, my father was in, the Democratic Party was where the people who were poor and working people were. And today, 70% of the wealth in this country is owned by the Democratic Party and only 30% the Republican Party. The top 10 counties, the top richest counties in this country, nine of the 10 are Democratic counties. Oh, there is this kind of shift in in uh, in wealth that maybe is one of the reasons that uh, Democrats do not seem to be talking to or for working people anymore. But I'm, you know, the people that I talk to, both through my job of representing them, you know, um, in you know, I'm representing a thousand families in Columbiana County, Ohio, Eastern Ohio, Western Pennsylvania, Western West Virginia whose lives were upended by the Norfolk Southern spill. And, uh, 
you know, they are just living in a le level of desperation that I never thought I'd see in the United States. And, uh, you know, my father used to bring us to, um, to Southeast Washington, he'd load us in, uh, in, a, in a station wagon and bring us to Southeast Washington to, to meet people who were, who were poor. Or he'd take us to the Mississippi Delta or West Virginia uh, to Appalachia or the Indian reservations. And he always said to us, these, these are your people. Um, he said, the, the, uh, the people who are wealthy and the people who have, um, you know, who are the big corporate leaders and titans, they don't need the Kennedys. They have, um, they have lawyers and they have PR firms and they have lobbyists. And he said, these are your people. And he came back from, from uh, the Mississippi Delta one night and he said, to, uh, we were all eating, there were like nine of our kids in the dining room at that time. And he said, um, I was in a uh, tar paper shack today. There were two families there and they eat one meal a day and the kids go to bed hungry. And he said, when you grow, grow older, I want you to do something about those people. And um, you know, that's one of the reasons that I'm running. Robert F. Kennedy Jr., thank you very much for that. Thanks, thank you. Appreciate it. Younger people say the news is full of lies. Kennedy's motorcade. 239 people. The death of Jeffrey Epstein.